Hello and welcome to this week's episode of How to Breathe So You Don't Look Fat, a podcast titled after a lesson I was taught at eight years old. My name is Anna Mansell and I created this podcast to talk with regular people about the relationship they have with body, self and food, all in a desperate search to improve my own. This week we're with writer and charity sector PR Lorna Harris. We discuss the impact of grief on her relationship to food, a period in her life she describes as the trifle months, and the time someone dressed up their child as her for a fancy dress competition. So you are Lorna Harris and uh, you're a writer and a charity sector PR from Whitstable, 47 years young, um, and you're working on your first book, a memoir and deep dive into grief after losing your parents. Um, And and that is really how we connected, I think, isn't it? Um, You just mentioned there that it's three years tomorrow since your mum passed away. um, And not long after that, um, your dad sort of went viral, didn't he? And I think that's probably yeah. how I came across <laughs> you. Tell us about that quickly. Yeah, he didn't go, not viral in the sense of the viral that we're all used to now. But um, yeah, after my, my mum and dad were together for 50 odd years. And um, when my mum died, and she died suddenly, or, or suddenly as in, you know, five, one day she said she didn't feel well and five days later she was gone. There was no... You know, until then, she was driving around in her car and living her best life, um, which is a blessing in some ways, but was was hard for us. But my dad was um, devoted to her. They were a real pair. And um, he made me this birthday cake. My birthday was a little while after my mum died, a couple of months after. And he made me this birthday cake. He tried to recreate the birthday cake that she always made um, for us, for me and my brothers. Um, Even as we got older, she'd always do this you know delicious victoria sponge cake and my dad tried to do it um added by the sense that he already wasn't well himself he'd been living with heart failure and pulmonary fibrosis and um anyway he tried to make this cake it was all like wonky and stuff (laughs) but it was like when he gave me the cake i went round. well i was basically looking after him after mum died i got home from work and uh he was like i've done something oh god (laughs) and he's like i tried to recreate mummy's cake and um I was so moved by it that I just, I snapped a photograph of it, never in, like, never thinking it would become anything. And, um, like, what happened was it did become something. I put this this tweet up saying, you know, 44 years, my mum made me this cake, and now my dad's tried to recreate it. And um, it went viral. And when I say it went viral, I mean... My phone was beeping away, and I was thinking, "What's what's happened? <laughs> Someone discovered something I did in 1989, or something, you know." <laughs> and uh, that tape finally leaked from my red coat days, <laughs> and uh, and I think within like a day, it got like thirty thousand likes, and then forty thousand. Then I started getting emails from people who had experienced grief, and then it got picked up by BuzzFeed and Upworthy, and um it kept going viral and even so my dad loved it even though he didn't understand twitter i used to call it twitter um <laughs> uh, and he'd go like are you chat are you having a chatter on twitter <laughs> and he never got it um but yeah it went viral and i think it cracked open a conversation on grief that really needed to be had um because people really started to open up about their experiences yeah um and so that's, I think, how we 
we yeah. met. I think it will be. I think I was probably at that time um, searching around for stuff because I knew what was coming. I had the the benefit for me, really, I suppose, unlike yourself, your experience, I had the benefit of knowing that it was coming. And so you sort of, you're trying to navigate the whole process and reaching out to people who might understand because if you haven't lost a parent, yeah. I don't think there's any other grief kind of like it. Um, or at least that's, that is to say that all kinds of grief are different, but there are things that you can relate to when somebody has, ru- has lost a parent. And, and so you're sort of trying to find some way to, I don't know, ground yourself or hang on somehow to yeah. something so that you can work through, in my case, what was, what was pending. Um, and obviously in your case, what had happened um and then I think probably when your dad passed that was very similar time to when my mum when I finally lost mum so there was that thing as well and and we we did exchange a few tweets over that period of time um I think um what the sense I got I mean you know I spent my life scared like scared of losing my mum and then desperate to sort of know I'd be okay once I did yeah, And so I was kind of looking for people that had gone on and had a good life because I couldn't imagine how you would. How yeah. can you be all right after that? Um, after, especially, you know, all relationships with parents are different, but I can, I idolise my mum. Mm. I mean, she was just, um, and we were great friends and I loved her and I love her and it was awful. And mm. um, even though I remember sort of, the day they said look you know this is not okay and she's not going to be all right desperately kind of searching for stories of people that had been all right I remember reading reading a story about someone who had lost both parents in terror it became like a grief like a terrorist attack I remember it became like a grief olympics like I've got to be all right you know I've got to be all right at this and yeah and I think people really opened up to that tweet um I got thousands of private messages Mm. emails um and even now my dad died died after my mum six months after my mum and even now I um the other day it was like it got 495,000 likes on Upworthy because it (laughs) keeps appearing yeah yeah America love it love him they love my dad's cake (laughs) but you know it's it's taken on a life of its own really but yeah, yeah I think it was more searching like you're desperately searching for some sort of glimmer of hope yeah yeah definitely so let's talk about because we'll talk about grief and food and body as as we're going on because I think there's I think we've probably both got things to say on that score but let's take you back um to that moment you first became aware of your body and you talked about a teacher when you were six yeah so I was um am was a a chubby a chubby child um and I remember yeah when you asked me sort of when I first came aware of my body I remember a teacher sort of saying to me a new teacher saying that I was very fat you're very fat I was about six and um and I just remembered feeling like that was bad Mm. like I felt a sense of shame and until that point it had been like isn't she cute isn't she this isn't she that no one had ever actually said anything I know I was really little and I was in like 
reception or, or junior and I know I was in my little school little school <laughs> you know um and I just remember feeling feeling mortified and embarrassed and yeah. I was so young um and I think that was when I sort of looked around and thought oh yeah I am bigger than other people I am bigger than my friends and you know I'm I am wearing bigger size clothes than other six-year-olds and that was my first sort of conscious awareness of it um and it was never everything else has been like oh look at your chubby cheeks look at your isn't she cute so I was cutesy and it was the first time that fat felt bad to me um because of the way it was said yeah, absolutely. There is something about that, isn't there? I was thinking about this in relation to my own journey and that thing around, and just in general, the thing around at what point it changes, at what point do you stop being cute and chubby? And you know, my mum always used to talk about, oh, little baby thighs and little chubby yeah. baby thighs and how delicious. And, you know, and when you've yeah. got, when you give birth to a child and they're a solid baby, people might both, well, no, my son, sorry, was, was a, a chunky baby from birth you know the second he came out he was already solid and people really liked the fact that they could pick him up and they didn't feel like they were going to break him and it was a real positive thing and then you suddenly get to six and that thing that everybody has been celebrating is the thing that that they want to burst your bubble with Anna I remember it so clearly as well I think it became um it became my sort of the way that I defined myself because right. I think it was the first time anyone had, had actually, first time I'd sort of felt that people would look at me in any particular way. And I was such a happy little kid. Um, and I remember it. I mean, I'm 47 now, but I can still, I don't really remember the faces of anyone told me I was cute or pretty or looked lovely. I don't remember any of those, right? But I remember Mrs. Fraser at school, um, saying to me my goodness you're very fat just remember it so clearly and I think that that's my earliest memory and that is probably one of my earliest memories of school which Mm. might go on to explain quite a lot yeah yeah I don't think people realize I mean maybe we are beginning to realize now uh, because more co- people are having these sorts of conversations but but the yeah. impact of the things that are said to young people and how they carry that with them and how mm. it shapes their thinking and how they enter into whether it's work or relationships with self or relationships with other people you know we're, we're such we're sponges as children aren't we we're, we're soaking yeah. it all up and 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 children are so perceptive so the thing that you might say that seems flippant will be, you know, understood on a much deeper level than yeah. the child perhaps understands they understood. You won't have necessarily understood it was shame and embarrassment you were feeling no. at six, but you will have known that you felt unco- deeply uncomfortable. I, I felt really uncomfortable and I felt really like um, focusing on it. Yeah. It, was, it was said with disgust. Yeah. And I know that that's probably, I've probably grown that memory over time, but it was said like you're, it wasn't said in a, oh, you're cute or you're big for six or it wasn't done in a way that I could flip it. Yeah. It was just done in a way that was cruel. But that's the point, isn't it, for me? And yeah. why it's so important how we're talking about ourselves and yeah. other people in front of children, because like you say, it may not have been said as, 
obviously was said unpleasantly, but it, it, it may not have been as deeply said as the way you heard it, but it, that's, that seed was planted. Yeah. And for every yeah. continuing ongoing message or little bit of information that you saw somewhere or conversations you overheard or uh, conversations about other people might not have even been related to you. It all compounds that seed that's been planted. A hundred percent. And I just, I think that, you know, like you say, people weren't having the conversations about being bigger or being overweight or body image that they're having now, you know. Um, so as I grew up and got bigger and the cute becomes, puppy becomes bullying becomes something I couldn't quite understand why I was you know I couldn't quite understand why I was bigger than everyone else and yeah you know my mum was my mum was very beautiful so I had this sort of glamorous kind of icon yeah and then I had two big burly brothers and I think she just kind of fed me like one of the boys you know yeah. I don't know really what was going on but um, yeah. I, mean, I think it was probably love, though, wasn't it? I mean, that's the thing that comes through from when you talk about your parents is just yeah. the true unconditional love. And so there was yeah. no, you know, and people do that in lots of different ways. I don't, was she much of a cook, your mum? Yeah, I mean, we we were like a well-fed family. Yeah. We were definitely a well-fed family. But that, um, and she loved cooking and, yeah, we... Yeah, we're just a normal family, really. But food but is food, nurturing, isn't it? Food is nurturing. And I remember, like, when I was upset, food would appear. Yeah. When I was happy, food would appear. Um, and I'm still a bit like that now. Like, I can, you know, happy, have something to eat, really happy, let's celebrate, really sad, let's have some chocolate. I still feel <laughs> those things now. Yeah. Um, but... I do think she was a bit worried, though, as well. Because right. obviously, I, she wasn't worried at six. You know, I don't think she was worried about anything then. I can't remember if I told her what my teacher said, actually. That's one memory I can't, I can't remember. But I, I know that as, as the teacher realised, so did other people start to realise. So it would be the first thing people would say if they wanted to, like, upset me or, mm. you know... Um, but within the family home, it was always really positive and it was always really your, your individual and your unique and, you know, you, you've got to be who you are and don't worry, you know, don't worry about what people think. So I remember like the summer holidays were like, I became a different girl because we'd go off to our caravan and I'd make friends with all these new kids who weren't horrible to me. And, yeah. you know, I think it was like, and that became difficult but home wasn't difficult yeah. and you say that you were a red coat in your yeah, 20s was. which is yeah, brilliant so, <laughs> well I was actually really young when I went off to be a red coat um I think that I during summer holidays I would feel the way that I wish I always felt yeah. So I'd see these people being Butlin's red coats or Pontin's blue coats or Haven mates on the holidays we'd go on. And I was like, probably only about 17, 18, these kids. But to me, they were like, oh, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And it became, I was so determined like to do it. I'm mm. so determined. And um, as I got older, I you know, used to go to Saturday singing lessons and things like that. And then at 17, I auditioned. And at 18, I got my first holiday camp. And I did, that till I, was, I did that till I was 24. I kept deferring my degree. And 
things. And I did it till I was 24 and I was Haven Holidays, one of their youngest entertainment managers. So by sort of 23, I was running my own entertainment scheme. I, I sort of found my place. Um, because, you know, as well, we talk about body image, but I was big then. I was big, the biggest person on the team, but I found that I incorporated it as part of my persona, my personality. Right. Which... In what way? How did, how did you incorporate it? I was just like the jolly, the jolly fun one, you know, the bubbly, all the words that I hate, you know, the bubbly, the jolly one, the one that, like, people used to come, boys used to come up to and say, like, is your friend Melissa single? I was that friend. I was the wing woman, you know? Yeah. Um, and the, the kids loved me at the holiday camp. I'd run a lot of the kids' club. Um, but I still remember moments of feeling awful, like when we used to have to go to the seminar to do some training, and we went, and there you'd pick up your uniform. And um, my, the uniform didn't fit me, and they had to, like, outsource a uniform like they had to order a bigger size uniform for me yeah which meant the first two weeks of the holiday camp I was in this really tight jacket and just feeling awful and like, little things like that and um I remember like when there was a fancy dress the kids fancy dress this little kid those little kids like she's probably in their 30s now but this <laughs> little kid like borrowed a haven mate jacket and like padded it out and went dressed up as me right um, and even then I was 18, 19, and I remember feeling that shame that I felt when I was six. What would go even through though, a parent's mind to let their child... Well, I think, I know, I think you sort of, I wore it well, right? So I was always made up, I was always glamorous, I was always fashionable, yeah. I kind of didn't wear it. If it was, if I was 19 now, I'd be a body positive influencer or something like yeah. that's how I felt there you know they didn't exist then but that's probably what I find myself doing yeah um and I just I think people just uh, you know like when when you're fat you can get treated like a punch bag yeah um it's somehow all right um well you did say that later on after you when you were on your way to your graduation ceremony yeah. That a man stopped his car and wound the window down. Yeah, I was on my way to my graduation to get my results. And um, I lived a little bit away from the campus and I was waiting at the bus stop. I was really excited. And um, this man pulled up in the car, wound down the window. And I thought that he was asking for directions. So I kind of leant in and um, he just shouted at me that I was a fat D-U-N-T. Um, and... When I say shouted, it was like I'd stolen his life savings, like he the, the venom. And he, he stopped his car while I was down that window and shouted at me. And then he went down the window and drove off. And I was I started to cry at the bus stop. I just, and I remember like, no one else was there because I was running late. And I was thinking, no one saw that. So that memory exists between me and him. Mm, no yeah. one saw that. Well, if he um, even remembers it. Yeah, I mean, like, sometimes I think he's probably got kids. He's probably, and to be honest, he was a bit older, but probably not a lot older. Mm. But I just remember, like, the days were still great. I went and got my results and had drinks with my friends. But um, that day I went on a diet. Did you? 
Um, yeah, that day was the day. I'd been on diets before. You know, I'd sat with my mum in Weight Watchers classes. Um, when you wasn't even techie, you used to have to, like, spin the your weight. You had, like, a little cardboard yes, thing. Yes, I remember that. Spin it round. Tell you how much you could eat. Yeah. I'd done, I'd done um, diets where you'd have, like, two shakes and a bar, you know. Yeah. I'd, like, tried and... Um, at the same time, was having problems with like polycystic ovaries, which was they discovered was the problem of my weight. And yeah, but yeah, I remember at that point thinking, right, Lorna, like you weren't meant to stop and ask you out. You don't want them to stop and shout at you. So um, <laughs> I was sort of in my twenties then, and that's when I really thought, nah, I can't. I don't want to be defined like this. And is that when you lost that big chunk of weight? Um. Probably not. I did lose some. I lost about four stone. Mm. Um, and I felt so much better. I was still big, but I felt so much better. Um, but I never let myself sort of stay there long enough to enjoy it. Because I'd be like, oh, I'm all right now. And I'd like eat my way back up. Yeah. So I would say that I'd lo- I lost the same few stone on and off over lots of years. And then... Um, by this point, I was like 20 stone. So it wasn't being a little bit bigger. It was being very big. It was shopping in plus size shops. It was wearing size 26 jeans. Um, yeah. It was, it was the, you've got such a pretty face if you'd only lose weight. It was those years, you know. Mm. Um, and I think I had a bit of a like fuck it mentality because I think, well, people saw me like it anyway. So it's like just, you know. But food has become less of a joy and more of um, a comfort and more of something that I would binge. Um, yeah. And I was living living in a student house with lots of drinking, blah, blah, blah. And then after that, living in a flat on my own. And then suddenly it was like license to, you know, license to scoff, you know. Yeah. Nothing being pleased. Yeah, yeah. Um, after that incident, I did think, oh, you know, to make someone stop, I must look really awful. It was always about what I felt, like I must be. Yeah. I must look. It was yeah. not that person you think that's awful. Yeah. It was about it must be me that's awful. So we do um, take responsibility to... for it, don't we? As if it's our yeah. as if it's all our fault or all, as if we're terrible people for inflicting yeah. our fat bodies on 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 the general public. Yeah. <laughs> taking up taking up space just taking up space and feeling like you can't and feeling like all the other things I was which is you know clever and starting out in my new career and um earning enough money to have my own flat in my 20s you know all those other things I never really thought about it would Mm. always be look how big my jeans are or look how I have to dress like I'm old to go to a nightclub because I couldn't find the things that I always seem to have really beautiful friends. Um, and so, you know, and people say to me, you're so confident. I wish I could have your confidence. And, you know, it didn't stop me sort of going up to London, going for job interviews, doing all these things. It never, that never bothered me. My size never bothered me in that way. It yeah. Was, the minute I felt that it bothered other people, it would bother me. Yeah. Until that point, I was quite oblivious. Yeah. Until I wasn't. Yeah. Hello. 
Forgive me interrupting the podcast, but I just wanted to let you know that if you enjoy these chats and want to show us some appreciation, you can now buy us a coffee at our new coffee account. If you head to ko-fi forward slash how to breathe so you don't look fat and leave us a tip or go to our Instagram page and find the link in our bio. Any and all donations are not just welcome, but appreciated. Thank you. And back to the chat. And so then you lost a huge amount of weight. You say you lost eight stone. Yeah, I lost eight stone. Um, and I've kept eight stone off and never lost the rest, really. Well, when I say the rest, I mean, for me, being in a size 16 and going into a shop and putting a size 16 on was like target weight. It was like, this is it for me, you know. Yeah. Um, and seeing how people changed as my body got smaller, how people changed towards me was so interesting. Um, it did, it, it felt like I became a more viable person. Yeah. But in their eyes, but I wonder if that is not true at all. And I became more viable in my own. Oh, I, that's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I felt better, I felt smaller, I felt trendier, prettier, I started to get boyfriends and, you know, I mean, it was hellish. I mean, I sat in, I'd gone to Harley Street at 27 and, like, had a consultation for gastric surgery. Yeah. And that would have happened, but I couldn't afford it. Um, and it was the only time, actually, that I was told I was too small for something. <laughs> really? So, yeah. I was like, oh. Um, so... Yeah, so I did lose a lot of weight. I did it through, slimming. I did it in a healthy way, like I joined Slimming World and it started to work and I was like, what is this? I can eat all this stuff and it's still starting to work. And then as I got smaller, I started to exercise a bit. Um, and then I think as well, like my hormones got more balanced and things started to, to happen in my body. Um, and I got put on medication for polycystic ovaries, which slowly meant that that, a lot of the way they found out that I had a sluggish thyroid and all these things that actually might have explained the, the yeah. fact that I just couldn't shift weight yeah. started to, to happen. Um, and I remember like the first time I kind of wore like a little black dress and went out and felt, you know, amazing. And I thought, I'm never going to go back there, but you do like you do gain and lose and gain and lose. That's just, that's just does, does that frighten you yeah it's so funny you feel so different about the weight when you start seeing it going back up to like how you felt like I remember when I because I'd been about 11 stone which felt really 11 stone something which felt really slim to me when you've been 20 stone I had like a lot of excess skin and stuff but I didn't really care I just, you know put my thanks on and got on with my life <laughs> but I um I remember when I went from the 11s to the 12s and feeling devastated. Yeah. Devastated that I was back in, I'm in the 12s now, but back in those, that bracket, you know, that. And then thinking, wow, at, some, at one point, like, I remember doing like, a victory dance when I reached 15 stone, like, because it meant I'd lost five stone. Yeah. Um, and I felt so different about it on the way sort of back up. Um, and, yeah, I don't let myself... So, I mean, I don't let myself go back up in, in the sense that when I got to 12 and a half again, I was like, right, Lorna, come on. You know, I'm quite strict in that way. Um, I don't know how I'd feel. I, I, 
I remember hearing Dawn French say once that she never slags off her own body because there's a very good chance she might end up back in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. I sort of have, I have that frame because, you know, since losing my parents, like, my weight is not worried. Like, come on, I, it takes you, it takes something enormous, like, to realise I spent so much time worrying about Mm. little things and not going out for the cake with my mum and not doing those things because I wanted to get I wanted to lose that week although she was very pleased like so pleased for me not that she ever said anything um but she'd try and do it with me you know that was the sort of approach I'll do it with you but when she saw that suddenly I was you know going off to Australia and doing all these things and I like to think I would have done it if I'd still been 20 stone, but I don't think I would have. No. But I like to think I would have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Because I, I, you talk about losing your mum and how that had the impact of that for you um, was more to look at how you feel. Yeah, yeah. D- despite those few months of living in, how do you describe it, in the, the, a, tr- a haze of uh, trifle? Um, yeah, the trifle year, the trifle months, me and my dad called them. Yeah. Like, we couldn't eat. We couldn't, we just ate trifle. And I was so desperate for my dad to eat that I'd say, Dad, I've bought some trifles. And he'd say, Oh, have one with me. So, like, or I'd take him to a cafe and he'd have like a pan of raisin and they'd go, Go on, Lord, have one with me. And we, we, we just ate. We, we yeah. just ate. And I did, it was really interesting. I think my mum always looked, amazing and people would like go oh, you're so glamorous and stop her in the street and say where's you know you look, look at you you're amazing and I'd be with her when she was people would just go wow she had really big blonde curly hair and she's really beautiful and so like in my mind I thought well if she looks all right she must be all right yeah like she you know she always had her lipstick on she always looked great and um and then when she her belly swelled up and she went to the doctors and they said, you've got to go to A&E, um, and they thought it was a kidney infection, and then they found out that she had um, end-stage ovarian cancer that she didn't know she had. Mm. And when she was in her late 30s, she'd had a hysterectomy, and they thought she thought that they'd taken her ovaries. Yeah. Um, and But they'd left slithers of the ovaries in to help with the hormonal changes, and it was, right. they'd embedded... They'd embedded into the um, a mental lining of her stomach and had been quietly growing. You know, she used to go, "Oh, I'm so, you know, I'm losing weight, but look at my belly. It's all the cake your father makes me eat." And there's always a reason. You know, they'd retired. Um, and it was only when she was in the hospital she said, "Oh, I haven't felt, I haven't really felt right for a while, actually." But I thought I was just knackered, Mm. getting older. Mm. I thought, God, we, you know. We worry so much about the external. Yeah, um, that's it's really true. But also, I mean, my um, for listeners who've heard all the podcasts, you will have heard me talk about some of this. But for those who haven't, um, my mum had a, a really rare form of uh, abdominal cancer, um, which meant that she it, it was like a jelly that grew in her abdomen. Um, and so she would lose weight elsewhere, but she'd still have this big tummy. And she'd, she'd yeah. we'd go food, clothes shopping and she'd try something on and she'd just look at me with this disgust about her belly. 
Yeah. But, wow. But was absolutely certain that it was all her own fault because of the cake yeah. that she had or the cheese toasties she had down at Duckies or that, you know, whatever it was, it was always her fault, particularly when she got down to Cornwall after her parents died and she followed us down here. We'd go off trolling, she used to call it. We'd go off trolling to a cafe for lunch or, you know, she'd go out every day and she'd have, she'd have breakfast one place and the next day she'd have lunch somewhere and the next day she'd have breakfast again. She was forever doing that. So she was convinced absolutely that it was all her fault. And yeah. the fact that she was tired yeah. was just because she was old and maybe a bit grief after losing her parents. And, you know, there was always other, it was always her fault and it was always you know nothing to do with the fact that actually potentially there was something wrong yeah and even your, when she, um yeah go your on. mom sounds like my mom always a reason because they live so much in their head yeah they don't really think about how they feel so no, much no no but um my mom was always blaming blaming the cake blaming everything I said to her once that because I was doing some work with the Eva Pill who are gynae cancer charity and I said that I'd been reading about the symptoms of ovarian cancer. And, like, she should get her belly looked at. And she said, no, you always forget. I haven't got any ovaries. Um, so, because I did say to her, get it checked out. Because mm. she did say a few times, look at my tummy. But basically, the, the, the last few days when we was really noticeable was when, obviously, all the edema had yeah. gone into her system. Her leg started to swell. And yeah. But I think if you've got, you know, it is worth looking at. If the rest of you is slim and you have a, a big belly. Yeah. Sometimes, it, my dad was quite funny afterwards. He'd say, we'd be like in Tesco's car park and he'd say, look, that woman, she's got a belly like mummy had. Do you think we should tell her? Yeah. <laughs> I'll go up to a random and say, just want to let you know, my dad's wife had the same belly as you. <laughs> No. But it's true. I do see that. I see people and think the same yeah. thing because uh, uh, mm. it affects men and women, the cancer that mum yeah. had. And I quite often will spot somebody and go, oh, God, I wonder if that's – I mean, it's none of my business, is it? But, but you do. You spot something and it, it does – it makes you think. It's so, so hard. I went and got my own belly checked after because I've always had a tubby belly. Yeah. But, that, but you know, you start going, really, could it be? You know – um it just makes you change your line of focus mm. to have I been tired a bit too long do I feel bloated a bit too often yeah Those things and I think really knowing your body I've spent so long trying to get out of my body um and be defined by my personality and my clever brain and all those things you yeah. know my singing voice all the things my writing something yeah. that it meant that I was looked at in a different way yeah and so it's always interesting to me, sort of stepping back, how I was so self-conscious, but then I chose to be on the stage for yep. those years at 18. And so it's that this weird, like, you know. But with mum, I wish she'd been a bit more aware of her body. I do get a bit about it sometimes. That yeah. If, she's only, if I'd have only said something sooner or pushed her to find out, after she died, we were going through some paperwork and we found a letter that said that the ovaries had been conserved, like some of the ovarian tissue had been conserved. Like in her, so I think she thought that meant it was gone. <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> so cause she was a bit silly at times, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I think that it, you said something about you, you spending so much time uh, n- 
being outside of your body and in fact uh wanting everyone to focus on everything but that um yeah and I I really relate to that as well it's certainly I've said before my body doesn't feel like a safe space it doesn't feel like somewhere that I particularly want to inhabit so the idea of centering self and considering how I feel is is terrifying frankly yeah yeah we all just push it off don't we get a bit of tummy out oh it's this it's like we are our own doctors in our head and we shouldn't be because yeah yeah, it's nothing it's nothing I'll leave it and you know I've now seen with my mum we're leaving it get you right so she's she said, I just thought I was tired from looking after dad. My dad was the ill one. We had our eyes on the wrong person, really. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, so following that, so, following yeah. losing both your parents then, you'd been through the trifle months. How did you feel, because you talked earlier about the fact that food was comfort as much as it mm. is celebration. So... I re- I know certainly when I lost mum, I spent probably a good 12, 18 months really feeding my grief. It was a, a food, yeah. the nurturing, the comfort, the the thing that I could escape to, the thing that I could mm. take myself entirely out of. In You know, it, it wasn't sort of drinking that would do that. It would be, I'll just binge an entire bag of crisps. Um, 100%. The German, Germany have got a word for it called like commerce come a speck or something which is called grief bacon oh really <laughs> <laughs> like it's the weight you gain after grief i saw that on the internet so it's probably not true but hey I'm, you know. i like it um, it should be yeah yeah i think it was really interesting to me because this even when when mum died the, the trauma of it i lost weight right and i still remember thinking and it sounds shallow, but thinking, oh, I'm in the 11s again. I just, yeah. think, you know. Yeah. Um, thinking, oh, well, you know, good on it. That kind of awfulness yeah. that comes with it. But I also remember that when she died, after we had to leave the hospital to go back and tell my dad that mm. um, that mum and dad, we went, me and my brother went to McDonald's drive-through. Yeah. We got a McDonald's because we hadn't eaten it with dinner, you know. Um, and I remember sitting in a car with my brother, like, eating a McFlurry, thinking, like, we've just left mum. Yeah. Um, and just eating this McFlurry, like, and then eating, like, about, like, I just, I, I just remember that we didn't know what to do, so I went to McDonald's, because we were trying to delay what we were going back to do, just to, to, my dad had been in to see my mum that day. Yeah. And said, you know, but I don't think he thought anything was we didn't know it was going to happen then, you know, and uh, and he's, he'd been by our side that day. But, you know, we were delaying the inevitable, I think, that we had to go back and tell him that mum was gone. Yeah. So then I became obsessed with feeding dad, making sure, you know, I always talk about those early days of grief with my mum. I remember being over my flat and the sticky, the sticky butter and jam knife and toast. Uh, it stayed in my head I can't eat jam on toast anymore really because I felt like that's all I ate and I just remember the sticky knife and you know how you're so super aware of how you feel like looking at this butter knife and this sort of debris of of pain around me yeah um so then when dad died so then we ate we had the trifle months trifle for breakfast 
um, and all of those sort of things. And then when dad died, dad died suddenly in front of me, a heart attack. And um, yeah, I, I, I that just felt for me like they might as well have gone at the same time. It was like my dad has become, I thought that I was like looking after my dad, but really I think he was looking after me. Yeah. Um, but I like, in some ways I lost mum and found dad because I was such a mummy's girl that my dad used to pick up the phone and be like, hello, love, how's work? And then go, get your mother. There was never like those deep conversations. But yeah. when mum died, I started to have them. Um, and it was it was quite it sounds insane it was it was a bit of like it almost felt like romance like I was getting to know him in such a different way we'd talk for hours and hours and hours he said to me once Anna do you know what Lorna I really enjoy your company and I never thought I'd hear myself say that <laughs> <laughs> he said you're always frantic there's always something going on I think oh what's wrong now but no you're you know you're all right oh. <laughs> that's one of those isn't it where on the part, one hand you go god what a lovely thing to say and uh, on the other right, hand like, backhanded all right dad thanks for that all right you know that's but I've got what he means because I've never thought I'd be able to spend that, that amount of time with my dad but he was a very interesting man and, and lovely and um and when he died I felt relief for him really because it was so poorly yeah relief for him that he didn't have to feel this pain of not having his blender anymore yeah you know? Yeah. Um, but I felt really sorry for myself and so I returned to food. Yeah. Yeah. Um like yeah. all the time, Uber Eats all the time, you know, ordering deliveries, not eating and then eating loads, ordering takeaways, da 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 and then sort of going through going out a lot to eat, going out, wanting to be out with people all the time. Um, that was yeah, food became a real crutch for me, much more than booze. Yeah, yeah, same. How long did that go on for for you, would you say? So what I, when mum and dad died, I sort of stupidly thought that I'd move into their, move out of my London flat and move into their Essex house. Like, my brothers were like, you know, you can live there and there's no bother to us and we'll do that. And I, so I moved into their house, which is the most ridiculous, stupidest move I could have made because it was like their life, not my life. And yeah. my life was, but I loved being over there when they were there, but I don't think I'd ever been there without them. Yeah. You know, so, but I did that for a little while. And then um, I sort of found myself like making a lot of things my mum used to make um, as well. And like, because there's such a lot of, nostalgia and loving food as well yeah I really miss my mum's food I really miss my mum's cakes you know oh Um, but I soon realized that I shouldn't be in Essex I shouldn't be in this house and and I decided to make the move to the coast um which was when I didn't have my London flat anymore didn't want mum and dad's flat had a bit of money for the first time ever and I was always wanting to live by the sea so moved to Whitstable and moving here I think my life got a bit healthier um and I started to have new experiences so I joined the choir I um would the first day I moved down here I was sitting in a cafe and I um heard someone say that a grief group was starting in the corner they were pushing tables together and I was like there was like a grief like bereavement group and I was like oh my god I've moved here today and I (laughs) this this bravery in me was like can I join you and um 
it's this social kind of bereavement group. So I think it's been the first time I talked to anyone out of the family about my situation. People mirrored like just you know I I'm single so and I haven't got any kids. So in a way, my mum and dad, I've gone for a breakup like the year before mum died. But in a way, they were a bit like my significant other. Yeah. But I spent all my time with them. So yeah. suddenly they were gone. Um, but then I met lots of people at this group that were amazing. And then the next week I joined the choir. And then I, I started to sort of have a different life. And it was a bit, for a few months, I felt like I was just playing at it. Like just sort of running away because the Essex house still needed sorting. But I noticed that I started to feel a bit fitter and a bit, you know, being by the sea and I was walking more and stuff yeah. like that. And I started to, my head felt clearer. Yeah. And the need to fo- to feed yourself dropped off again then. It did, yeah. And I started to think about this sort of imagined life I'd had, which is, as always, my mum and dad knew I wanted to move to Whitstable. It'd been a plan for a long time. Yeah. And, um, and I... Yeah, I had I started to like order like the chef boxes that you get with the recipes in and started to sort of cook for myself again. Um didn't deny myself anything. I still don't deny myself anything, but yeah. um I always know when it's gone it's tipped. Because when it stops feeling good is when I stop feeling good. So when I start to feel the ick, you know what I mean? Like that icky like yeah. this is becoming something uncomfortable now and this isn't about being hungry yes about trying to fill the void which I feel massive fucking void in my life right yeah because I walk around with this empty void without them it's so quiet without them yeah um um, but as you've got to find you know a way to fill it with other things or accept that I suppose three years on from mum and two and a half from dad accept that it may always be there in some form yeah Um, and that's kind of where my love for them lives in a way. That's, it sounds soppy, but I sort of think, you know, I, I worry about, I worry less about what I'm putting in my mouth now. Yeah. And, and think more about what I'm doing in my life and what this next bit of my life is going to be like and how the hell I'm going to get through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I love that. I think there's a real, it feels to me as if for all the grief and the the loss and missing them and the impact that mm. the trauma of that as well because yeah. it was traumatic yeah. for you in both of those instances but that also there's some kind of gift of empowerment that mm. as a you know your circumstances you've been able to or you have found some strength from somewhere to take control of your situation to make yeah. the move you'd always talked about making to sort of find some kind of sense of peace with how you your relationship with self your relationship with body and your self-awareness you talked about suffering from anxiety and all of those kinds of Mm -hmm. things since you lost your parents but there's but there's something about all of that where it feels to me as an outsider looking in where you're kind of you know we talked earlier on almost at the beginning of this conversation about how we felt the need to ground or to to hang on to something to to really find roots and it feels as if you have done that you are doing that what it was thank you and I do feel I feel that as well but what it was um I'm very blessed in I've got my brothers my sister-in-law's nieces nephews who I love but they have their lives and their families yeah and so mum and dad were my unit with them gone, 
the only person that I had was me. Yeah. And that's not, that's not, uh, I've got no one because my goodness, I've got people who are, who are there for me. Yeah. And people I've met since moving to Whitstable, it's the kindest, hardest place, you know. Um, but I thought, God, Lord, this can go one way or another. You yeah. know, it's really good. It really was. I don't think people realised how down to the wire it could have gone the other way. Yeah. And I could have been very unwell, very depressed, very broken and defined by what had happened. And yeah. the thing that makes me not do that is because my parents were not like that. Yeah. And they would be livid. But <laughs> I, I spent the first few months thinking they would want me to do, I I should do it for them. And now I don't think that ever. No, I no. make decisions based on me. And, you know, I remember someone saying, like, when you become an adult orphan, strange term but but you are the saddest you've ever felt but you're also the freest you've ever felt yeah and uh, when lockdown happened um I just built up this life in Whitstable and then suddenly boom lockdown on my own I started to feel I thought it'd be awful but actually I've got a lot of work done I've got a lot of writing done and I really sat with my grief for a long time and yeah grief was suddenly being talked about and I was suddenly able to sort of it's like the world met me where I was at you know yeah yeah so um I found myself in in a situation where I thought this could really could go either way and I was so happy that I'd moved to this little cottage my cute garden right by the beach and you know I just thought well if it was going to happen I'm not comparing it but I you know suddenly you start to feel the gratitude of being able to be with them when they died when you hear these tales of people that can't be and I imagined you know my friend lost her mum during lockdown and would sit text me up now but would would sit outside in the car park Mm. um with looking up at at ICU with the light just so and sort of send messages to her mum in her mind so that she could feel like her mum knew she was as near to her as she could be yeah and that 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 is just, I can't imagine not being able to, even though it's terrible that I was with my mum and dad when they died, it wasn't terrible. It was an honour, really. Yeah. Yeah, know, I 100% agree. Away. Yeah, I... I beautiful about it. Yeah, it's a great, great privilege, as, as difficult yeah. and devastating as it is. It is a great, great privilege. I love that you are basically showing up for yourself. And I love yeah. that you have that element of freedom around food but that you've also got that awareness that uh, there is a point where it is no longer comfortable it's no longer I'm just yeah. eating it because I need to eat you it's I it's got there a few, yeah a few weeks ago I ordered I discovered worst discovered ever shout out to my mate Steve who should never have told me that delivery and Uber Eats has come to Whitstable <laughs> um but I ordered like a ridiculous amount of McDonald's again it's always McDonald's you always know that I'm on a bit of a downward spiral if if I'm McFlurried up <laughs> but I am um, I yeah I ordered like more McDonald's than one girl needs right and I felt disgusting and I that was my ick point I was like no and then yep. the next day I was like right okay um it happens you know, yeah. if food is has been a friend and a foe, then sometimes it's both, right? So, yeah. but yeah, that that feeling of um, I don't know, everyone here's so healthy, like everyone's you know, they're <laughs> running and they're swimming and they're. But you know, I was saying about how people can still make 
you can still get that sense of shame around the size. It happened this weekend. Right. Um, so I went out. I waited till sun. I went out for a swim, and I lived right near the beach. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Everyone had gone. All the beach people had gone home. Um, all the day trippers, and I thought, oh, what I do is I'll wait till it's a bit quieter, and then I'll go out. So I thought, well, I, the, the beach is just across the road. So I grabbed my um, like gyro thing and my cosy, but it was so warm that I was just holding the gyro. And I walked over to the beach and I saw um, somebody who lives along my road, this lady, very nice lady. But she said to me, oh, look at you in your skimpy costume. I mean, it was just a swimming costume. Look at you in your skimpy costume. You don't care, do you? Uh, right? Uh, I went, I know, yeah, I'm going to go and join the masses. I'm going to go and join the masses. And it was only like, I had my swim and then I didn't think about it. And then I said to my friend yesterday, listen to this. And then I went through and I told her what had happened. And then I went through the, did she mean you don't care what you look like? Yeah. You don't care that it's busy. Yeah. You don't care that you're in a swimsuit when you look like that. Yeah. Or did she mean, you don't care and that's amazing. Like, you don't care that there's people out there. You don't care that it's night time. Oh, my God, the analysis I went through, like, what did she mean? Because she didn't mean it hurtfully, I don't think. But you don't care, do you? What is that? It's so heavily loaded. Do you know, do you know what it is, though? Because I've had similar uh, situations. Usually it's you're brave. Oh, you're brave. You're brave. Oh. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, and... I find it really difficult, but I have got to a point where I've started to think this this is about them and their inability to do what we're doing because of their yeah. own hang their own hang ups, their own viewpoints, their own thought processes. Certainly, in my in, you know, for me, that's my feeling on it is that actually that's looking at me and going, "Oh bloody hell, I wish I could do that." Yeah, and, and irrespective yeah. of size. And irrespective of time of year or any of those things, I think there's something uh, something that people, you know, I was one of those people who wished I could get in the sea for all kinds of different reasons and didn't, yeah. basically, because right. I didn't same, want to put a cosy on. Yeah. So I think, I, I think that's a lot of where it comes from for me. Yeah. I remember when I was on holiday once, staying in the pool for about four hours because this group of lads had arrived. And we're all sitting on something and I didn't want to get out. I was like shriveling. I was in the pool for <laughs> so long. <laughs> and they weren't even looking at me anyway. Like, you know, but just the things, the lies we tell ourselves, you know. Yeah. Whenever I've seen, whenever I've seen um, a sort of curvy woman or a bigger person living their life and doing what they want, I've always felt the same. I've always thought, I wish I could do that. Yeah. And I can do that. And, it's and you are doing that. And I am doing that. But I don't get me wrong. Like, I, every part of me wanted to put my big dry robe on and walk over. But it's literally across the road. And I just, yeah. it's almost like I've started challenging myself. Like, for years, I wouldn't show my arms off because I've got excess skin, like, fat arms from where I've lost weight. Mm-hmm. And now, I, you know, my mum used to go slap a bit of bronzer on them and get out there, you know. <laughs> And I just think, God, I've spent so long worrying what other people think about my body that I've not enjoyed it. Yeah. So And all the things it can do that, for you. Yeah, and I felt amazing going for that swim and I feel amazing going on my daily beach walks and 
you know um and there's even chat of like I might get a bike you know like these are things that I never thought I'd do no absolutely I got one last year and it has Amazing. absolutely revolutionized my life yeah. for the same reason I stopped cycling when I was about 13 because I kept having to get off it to push it up a hill and I felt oh. such shame and embarrassment about that I never got on I just used oh, to get backies you. off Deborah Ward instead <laughs> <laughs> So funny. I had a bike that I pushed around for a while as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, I can highly recommend. I, I, I think that younger people now, like people who are bigger now, do have more positive role models out there. Yeah. To see, absolutely. Um, I didn't see them. I think that was like Alison Moyer and Dawn French. Yeah. Like, they yeah. were bigger when I was growing up. There was nobody doing any of the things that I wanted to do and felt like I couldn't do because I was you know heavily overweight um I'm only short I'm only five foot three so to be 20 stone I was a big person but I honestly think sometimes I was happier yeah I I you know I said I didn't think about it till I did it was honestly like that I made it like part of who I am and was and, yeah. and even now I'm still you know I still think oh why can't you get the last two stone off or if only you were in the 10 stones and then I think oh do you know what fuck it right yeah like my mum did my mum went up and down with her weight as well but to see her diminish in those last few days so tight and become so tiny I just thought what are we putting ourselves through all this I mean I've got no interest in being 20 stone again no. Like, no, no interest. Um, but I've also got no interest in not going out for a cream tea. I want to go out for a cream tea. <laughs> Quite right, too. Well, Lorna, uh, I hope that maybe one day we might be able to share a cream tea and a swim. Oh, I really hope Lorna makes it down to Cornwall for that swim. If you have any thoughts following today's chat, feel free to tag me on Twitter or Instagram at How to Breathe So You Don't Look Fat. Or you can email me at howtobreathepodcast at gmail.com. Next week, we talk with Emma Pullen, a body confidence photographer who is on a mission to challenge the sexualisation and objectification of women. If you can, please do like, rate and subscribe to the podcast. I'd be extremely grateful, not least because it helps more people find us and I'd love to get these chats out to as many as possible. For now though, thanks to Mike Hall for editing and music. Thanks to my guest Lorna and thank you very much for your time. See you next week.